marvelous, blessed. All right, you guys ready to study? Study up, study the word. So uh, it's great to see you. Leviticus chapter 9 tonight, we are still studying the priesthood. And so remember, every time you see Aaron mentioned, it's a picture of Jesus. Every time you see one of his sons, it's a picture of you and I as New Testament priests. So you can see why Leviticus is such an exciting book. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get going. I think it's maybe a 40-minute lesson or something like that, and then you jot down questions or whatever maybe you want to add later on, and then uh, we'll just do a little Q&A afterwards and a little discussion. Talk about whatever you want to from there, all right? Jesus, thank you for a chance to gather once again to study the Word of God with the people of God. We pray the Spirit of God would guide us and teach us. Lord, that uh, this will be more than just another academic pursuit, but Lord, truly, Lord, as we study this amazing book, and especially as we study the priesthood of the ancient Hebrews, that Lord, we would become even more effective priests, New Testament priests, to offer up spiritual sacrifices daily. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus chapter 9. Welcome back to our study of the book of Leviticus. We are unraveling some of the mysteries of the Old Testament, parts of the Bible that many Christians really don't even want to admit that is there, much less actually read it. But we're finding out that Leviticus is foundational to our understanding of the New Testament. Remember, it is the most quoted book in the New Testament by Jesus and the apostles. It must be a very important book. Remember, the entire Old Testament is a picture book of the New Testament as God writes in pictures, word pictures of New Testament truth. So we've already discovered the first major theme of the book of Leviticus, that God has prepared for us a sacrifice. And we studied the five offerings of the ancient Hebrews, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and how Jesus embodied all of those offerings on the cross of Calvary, that all of those offerings in some way were a shadow pointing to what Jesus would do one day. And of course, you and I are to embody them as well. Everything that Jesus became for us, we're now to become for him, beginning with the burnt offering. And that's undoubtedly what was in view when the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 12 and verse 1, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. And so we're now in the second major theme or teaching of this book of Leviticus. God has prepared for us a sacrifice. The next thing is he's prepared for us a priest. And of course, we're going to end the book of Leviticus 
with a study of the tabernacle because he's uh, presented us and become for us a sacrifice, a priest, and a place. And of course, you and I are to be all those as well for Jesus. We are the sacrifice, we are a priest, and we are the place. And we're learning now what it means to be a New Testament priest as we study the Old Testament priesthood. Uh, we learned last time that Aaron and his sons are being prepared as priests in Leviticus chapter 8, Leviticus chapter 9. They've not yet begun their priestly ministry, but they're being ceremonially prepared, consecrated to the priesthood. And so much imagery here to teach us what it means to be a New Testament priest. People sometimes ask, well, what does Leviticus have to do with my life today as a 21st century Christian? And the answer to that is simple, just about everything. What does a 3,400-year-old document have to do with teaching me New Testament doctrine? It is teaching us one of the greatest New Testament doctrines alive today, the priesthood of the believer. And what's it mean to serve a high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, we've learned that Aaron, the high priest, is a picture of our high priest, the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that Jesus is our high priest. And so every time you see Aaron in the book of Leviticus, remember, Aaron is a picture of Jesus. So much we can learn about Jesus as our high priest by learning about Aaron and uh, his priestly ministry. Now, Aaron's sons were not the high priests, but they, of course, were priests. And that makes his sons pictures of you and I as New Testament priests. Remember 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. We're called a royal priesthood. And, and so you and I are part of the priesthood of the believer as New Testament priests of God. What does it mean? We need no human mediator, uh, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. He's the only intercessor we need. And because we're priests of God, we serve a high priest, the Son of God. We need no human mediator except for Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5, remember, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. See, you are the place. And it says a holy priesthood. You are the priest to offer up spiritual sacrifices. You're the priest, you're the place, and you are the sacrifice of God. And all of that in some way is encompassed here in word pictures in the book of Leviticus. So exciting. Now remember, we learned last time as priests of God, New Testament priests, we have direct access to God. Uh, Jesus himself makes intercession on our behalf. And because we're priests of God, we are welcome in the most holy place uh, in the tabernacle of God to offer up these spiritual sacrifices. Uh, not only that, we learned last time that as a uh, priests of God, what is these spiritual sacrifices represented in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5? Well, we learn from Hebrews 13 verses 15 through 16 that the sacrifice that God wants from our lives is the praise with our lips, the praise with our lives, and the praise with our giving, Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. We learned last time how the priests, they were given these special garments uh, they were given uh, very priestly uh, robes and uh, 
priests, of course, would be uh, given these fine white linen. And that's exactly the picture of you and I in Revelation chapter 19, how the priests were dressed in this fine, beautiful white linen. Revelation 19 tells us that that represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ in us. We have no righteousness of our own. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says we've been robed with a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, the parallels go on and on. I mean, we could go on and on with the parallels of what it means to be a New Testament priest just by studying here the book of Leviticus. Remember, not just anybody, even of the Jews, could be a priest. You had to be born a priest. You had to be born into the family line of priests. You had to be born into the tribe of Levi, specifically. So if you did not have the family line, if you were not born into the priestly family, you couldn't be a priest. There was no preschool to go to. There was no seminary you could graduate from to become a priest. You were born a priest, and that's what happened with you and I. The moment we were born again, Jesus said in John 3 and verse 3, you must be born again. And the moment you were born again, you were born into God's family, born of Christ's seed. You now have that priestly lineage. You now are born into that priestly family. And God has robed you now with those priestly garments. And uh, we've talked about the consecration then of the priesthood as Aaron and his sons were consecrated uh, to the priesthood. Moses did something very curious. Remember this last time. He took the blood of that lamb and he took that blood and he rubbed it on their right thumb, their right ear, and then the big toe of their right foot. How weird, how curious could that be? But God is being very clear. Uh, what is our calling as New Testament priests? He consecrated their ear, their thumb, and the right toe of their big foot with the blood, the blood of a lamb, so they might hear the word of God, they might do the will of God, and they might walk in the ways of God. And that's what we're called now as New Testament priests, to hear the word of God, to do the will of God, and walk in the ways of God. And right there's the problem for many of us, I'm certain. Perhaps it's listening to this lesson already. Uh, for many of us, we've never been fully consecrated to the priesthood. Uh, we, we, we're hearers of the word, but we're not doers of the word. And so consequently, we're not fulfilling our priestly ministry before the Lord Jesus Christ, still holding on and hanging out, not fully surrendered, not fully consecrated. And I'm trying to tell you that all of this is worthless uh, knowledge. It will do nothing for you to transform you. If you don't consecrate your ear, consecrate your thumb, consecrate your toe to hear the word of God, to do the will of God, and walk in the ways of God. And if you will, you will get to then live in Leviticus chapter 9. Because what we're going to see now is the glory of God come down on men. The glory of God begin to shine on them. I'm convinced chapter 9 is maybe one of the most important chapters in this entire book of Leviticus, because what we're going to see is that when you and I, as consecrated priests of God, are walking out the ministry as priests of God, the glory of God comes down from heaven and shines upon men, and that is the glory of the priesthood that I want to talk about beginning right now. Verse 1, chapter 9, and it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish 
and offer them before the Lord. Now, I want you to notice chapter 9 opens up with the eighth day. Uh, remember what we've learned? We saw this last time that according to uh, chapter uh, 8 and verse 33, that Aaron and his sons have been in the tabernacle for seven days. They have not been seen among men. Now they reappear on the eighth day. Now I'm telling you, once again, God is meticulous in all that he does. Not accidental, coincidental, very, very providential. God has chosen to do this on the eighth day. Because the number eight, as many of you know already, is a very significant number. And so what's about to happen, chapter 9, happens not coincidentally or accidentally on the eighth day. Not the sixth day, not the tenth day. God chooses specifically for these men to reappear on the eighth day. Uh, and not only do these men reappear, but look what else uh, happens on the eighth day. Look who else appears. Uh, look what it says now in verse 4. And it says this in verse 4. It says, Also a bull and a ram as a peace offering. Uh, also a bull and a ram as a peace offering. So the sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today it says, the Lord will appear among you. This happens on the eighth day. And so you have Aaron, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sons, a picture of the New Testament priesthood, appearing on the eighth day. And guess who else appears with them? The Lord is going to appear on this day, the eighth day. And the eighth day, of course, is a number of profound significance in the Word of God. And I hope by now you're learning a little bit of the, uh, the signs and the, and the shadows that God uses to teach us. How he leaves his fingerprint all over the Bible. And of course, in biblical numerology, uh, the number eight is very significant because the number eight is God's number of new beginnings. And that's what we have going on here, a picture of what happens with the new birth and that day of new beginning. What does God do with the number seven? Listen carefully. A lot of you know this, but the number seven is the most obvious number everywhere uh, throughout the Old and New Testaments. God's number seven is God's number of completion. And with God's number of completion, we can see that seven stamped over and over again in Scripture, beginning with the seven days of creation, uh, to uh, God telling Joshua to march around Jericho seven days, and on the seventh time, march around uh, seventh day, uh, march around Jericho seven times. Uh, God tells Naaman, go dip in the Jordan seven times, be healed of his uh, leprosy. Uh, to the book of Revelation, where sevens are all over the book of Revelation, it's the book of completion. Now, think about this. If the number seven is the number of completion, then the number eight is the number of new beginning. Think about this for just a moment. Jesus arose from the dead on the first day, which is actually the eighth day. God is trying to teach us something here with the number eight, isn't he? Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, which is the first day, which is also a new day of a new week, which makes it the beginning uh, and a uh, brand new day in terms of what God is doing. I want you to see that God is teaching in Leviticus chapter 9 something very special here. Think about this for a moment. For example, um, God was very specific. The Hebrews were to take their little baby boys and they were to circumcise them on the eighth day. Again, not on the third day, not on the fifth day, not on the tenth day. God was very specific on the eighth day. Now, there's a number of reasons why. 
And we, of course, could talk about all the medical and clinical reasons why the eighth day would be the best day to circumcise little baby boys with, uh, you know, the protein K in the blood, which is the clotting protein. And that it's never higher in any of our bodies than on the eighth day of birth. And of course, that makes a lot of sense clinically why God might choose it. But there's so much more going on than that, because that Hebrew rite of circumcision was meant to be a picture of the new birth and new beginning that takes place in our life. The moment we are born again, Colossians 2.11 tells us there's a circumcision made without hands, the circumcision of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit. On that moment of salvation, when you call on the name of Jesus to forgive your sin and you offer your heart to him, the spirit of God takes the word of God like a scalpel and cut your flesh free from your spirit so your spirit can live. That is the circumcision made without hands. I want you to see they were circumcising their baby boys on the eighth day, specifically the number of new beginning, because at that moment, spiritually, inwardly, God circumcises the heart, cut your flesh free from your spirit, and it's a new day in your life. It's the new birth, a new beginning, all of that being pictured by that eighth day in the Hebrew rite of circumcision. Now, God tells us, I want you to go inside the tabernacle, Aaron and your sons. I don't want you to be seen among men for seven days. According to Hebrews 8, verse 33, now on the eighth day, you're gonna reappear. And not only are you gonna reappear, but I'm gonna appear. The Lord is coming down to appear now among men. Absolutely remarkable because you see what God is teaching is that the number eight is a symbol of resurrection life. Uh, there is no new birth without first there having been a death. You don't get life apart from death. Death and life are two sides of the same coin. You don't get a resurrection without a crucifixion. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 12. He said in John 12, 24, except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Of course, who he was talking about was himself. He's saying, if I hang on to my life, the one seed that I have, it will forever abide alone. But if I bury this seed, if I let it die, it's going to resurrect a lie, but it's not going to resurrect alone. And of course, every farmer understands the law of reaping and sowing. No farmer puts one seed in the ground expecting to get one seed in return. He puts that seed in the ground expecting that seed to be multiplied hundreds of times. And that, of course, is what is pictured here with the eighth day. You don't get to the eighth day, the new beginning, without going through the crucifixion, the number seven, God's number of completion. I want you to see the ministry of a priest must be done on the basis of resurrection power, the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ upon your life. That, you see, is the power and the glory of the priesthood. It's having the power of God living within you. And understand, until you are consecrated, a picture of the cross, consecration is just another way of saying crucifixion. Until as a priest of the living God, you are consecrated and crucified, having died to self and died to sin, you will never live in the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ to fully live out your priestly ministry as a follower of Jesus. Now, let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 2. 
And uh, we're not going to read all the way down through here, though we could. It's getting kind of repetitive, a little bit redundant. Yes, I'm wearing cheaters now, have you noticed? So eventually the curse of Adamson catches up to us all. And uh, I'm just uh, tired of squinting. So I'm going to use these cheaters, uh, these readers. But pick it up here in verse 2. And look what it says. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish and offer them before the Lord. And to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish, as a burnt offering, also a bull and a ram as a peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do, and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, Go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, offering the offering of, of, of the people, and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Aaron therefore went to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Then the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood, put it on the horns of the altar, and poured the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe from the liver of the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord had commanded Moses, the flesh and the hide he burned with fire outside the camp, and he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons presented to him the blood which he sprinkled all around the altar. You can read all the way down to verse 22. And basically what you're seeing is something we've seen many times before is we studied these five offerings. So we're not going to rehearse these again. We've already studied the burnt offering and the sin offering and the peace offering, etc. You understand now what they mean. But I want you to see what a lot of people see is just some bloody, gory, ugly book. No, listen carefully. God is teaching us a very important principle that you absolutely don't get life and you don't live the abundant life in Christ and you don't live in the resurrection power of Christ without first going through uh, something called death. There is no life apart from death. And only as you go through the consecration of the crucifixion and you become the burnt offering and you make your sin offering, do you ever then get to fulfill your priestly ministry and live in the power of the resurrection, the resurrected life. This is what he's trying to teach us now. At this point in the book of Leviticus, Paul would put it another way over and over again. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, in the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There was a common theme virtually throughout all of Paul's epistles. Of, uh, of dying to self and dying to sin. As we die to self and die to sin, we become alive in Christ. And to the degree you have fully died is the degree you will fully be alive. And this is our position as priests now of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it over and over again. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, knowing what? That our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. You see, only as you make your consecration as a priest, and the consecration is a crucifixion, you recognize your co-crucifixion with Christ. 
that the moment you came to Christ, you gave up your life and you died. And now that you have died, you can now be fully alive. You live in the power of the resurrection only by way of the crucifixion, only as you make your burnt offering daily. These offerings, remember, they not only picture the death of Christ, they picture our death in Christ. When Aaron's sons would lay that lamb or that ram on the altar, and they would shed the blood of that ram or that lamb, and they would, they would let the life slip from that lamb or that ram. Listen, it was to remind them of something. Something must die within us all. Something must die within. We need to have a funeral daily, and that funeral is mine. That funeral is yours. These offerings were expected to teach the offerer, the worshiper, something must die within themselves. They were, they were not to merely offer this offering on behalf of another. They were to offer it also for themselves. And that's what's so interesting. Remember what Aaron is told here. First, make the offering for yourself and then make that offering for others. Because you see, you can't make your life an offering for others until you have first offered your life to God. And that is why it's not enough just to know it theologically, just to know my position historically that I was in Christ, Galatians 2.20, therefore I died with Christ. No, no, that's more than something that happened in history, though it did happen in history. It's now something you have to do daily, right? First, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, the apostle Paul said, I die how often? He said, I die daily. Uh, Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, or I beg you, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, your reasonable act of worship, is when every single day you crawl back on the altar, you get on that altar again, and you surrender your life again every single day. It's a process of daily dying doing it over and over again. That's what it means to now be a New Testament priest. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. There it is. There's the paradox. If you want to live in Christ, you've got to make the decision to die with Christ. And Jesus was teaching in John chapter 12, as it was with him, uh, we would have to do it in our lives again and again and again and again. Except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let me ask you, do you want to live a fruitful life in Christ, the abundant life in Christ? You do not have to live a barren life. You don't have to live a wasteful life. You can live a fruitful life. And as a priest of God, that should be our hope, to have a fruitful ministry, a fruitful priestly ministry. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. He wants to multiply your life over and over and over again. But you don't multiply your life in Christ until you have fully died in Christ, except that grain of wheat falls in the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now listen carefully. God's trying to remind us of this truth. He wants us to never forget this truth. He's trying to teach us that something must die within us. And what must die within us is self-rule. What must die within us is self-governance. Uh, what must die within us is self-preservation of trying to hang on to self. He's saying, listen, let go of yourself 
and I will reproduce my life through you over and over and over again. The life of a priest was to make sacrifice for others. Before he could make sacrifice for others, he had to first make that sacrifice for himself. Very interesting. God doesn't miss a thing. Look at what it says here in verse 7. It says this. It says, And Moses says to Aaron, Go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now listen, uh, this is why many of us have a hard time offering ourselves for others. Because we've never first offered ourselves fully to God. And until you offer yourself fully to God, there is no way you can make your life an offering for others. <laughs> We're too selfish by nature. Uh, we very much want to hang on to ourselves, not give away ourselves. But ultimately, what comes before the other, your life cannot be used by God as a sacrifice for others until you have first offered your life as a sacrifice unto God, until you've laid down your life dying to self and dying to sin. And that is what is absolutely remarkable now about these offerings. Listen, he tells them to make two offerings. What sacrifice are we to make? He tells them very specifically, make a burnt offering and make a sin offering. Now I want you to think about it for a moment. Why would God choose of the five offerings, specifically now, a burnt offering and a sin offering? I'll tell you why. It's obvious. The burnt offering represents death to self. The sin offerings represents death to sin. And you see, every day as we make this offering as a priest of God, we die to self and we die to sin. We make our burnt offering and we make our sin offering. And as you make your sin offering, you are dying to sin. And as you make that burnt offering, you are dying to self. And I will promise you as a priest of God, offering up these spiritual sacrifices unto God, as you become a burnt offering daily, and you offer that sin offering daily, and you die to self, and you die to sin, the glory of God is going to descend. And that's exactly what happens now in this passage. Look at verse 22. The glory of God is coming down, just as God promised on this eighth day, this day of new beginning. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. <laughs> and it makes sense now, the peace offering follows. You know why? Because if you want the peace of God and not just have peace with God, you have to first be the burnt offering and then offer your sin offering. I will promise you, sweet friend, when you have died to self and you've died to sin, you're going to have peace within. And you see, all of that is now being pictured in verse 22. Verse 23, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You better believe it. Just imagine this scene, what this must have been like. Uh, the tabernacle is down in a valley. Picture a kind of a natural amphitheater. You've got probably a million people up on the high ground watching what's happening in this tabernacle. They've been watching for seven days. No one has come out. Aaron and his sons have gone in. They have not reappeared. They have not been seen for seven days. Now on the eighth day, the day of new beginning, 
You've got Aaron and his sons that reappear, Moses with them, and the Lord's presence himself begins to descend. Uh, what an amazing moment this must have been. You talk about an experience. You talk about spiritual revival and awakening. A million people are now falling on their face in worship of the living God because of this priestly ministry. And I want you to see that it was their priestly ministry, having been consecrated before God, having offered the sin offering, the burnt offering, all of a sudden the glory of God begins to descend. The manifest presence of God began to invade the presence of men. That's called revival. Do you see what our purpose is now as New Testament priests? Our purpose as New Testament priests is that as we die to self and we die to sin, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ begins to descend. And all of a sudden, we start living lives we never could have lived in the natural. We're now living in the supernatural. We went by way of the burnt offering. That's the consecration. That's the crucifixion. So that then we become the sin offering. Not that we're going to be sinless, but we begin to live a life that sins less and less and less and less. And when we do, all of a sudden, I will promise as New Testament priests what happens the glory of God begins to descend. That's our purpose as New Testament priests, to bring forth the glory of God upon the earth. First uh, Peter 2 and verse 9, what's it say? It says that we are a chosen generation, a holy nation, a peculiar or special people, a royal priesthood. For what reason? That he might shine forth the praises in us who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, as priests of God, a holy priesthood, we're here for one reason, to proclaim the praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of a sudden, our life becomes a lamp in the hands of a holy God to push back the darkness of this world. And that's what happens here in some way. In Leviticus chapter 9, the glory of God begins to descend, the manifest presence of God. We might say at our church, living proof of a loving God to a watching world. The light begins to shine and the glory of God begins to descend. You see, when you are dead to sin and you are dead to self, the glory of God will fall upon your life. And all of a sudden, your life is going to shine bright for Jesus Christ. Uh, your life will shine bright in the sense that what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? You are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hid. Even so, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God, which is in heaven. That's what's happening here now in Leviticus chapter 9. And as we fulfill this priestly ministry, we die to self. We die to sin. We offer that burnt offering. We offer that sin offering. Now, our life can become an offering to others. As we've sacrificed our life unto God, our life now becomes a sacrifice to others around us to shine the light of God into their life. And God gets the glory. Can you imagine the glory that our life can produce as we begin to become that sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Here's what I want you to see. You can have the fire of God. The fire of God can be yours in your life. The power of God is what I'm talking about. But to have the fire of God, you've got to become the fuel of God. See, the fire doesn't fall on empty altars. Uh, you remember 
uh, what Elijah did, right, on Mount Carmel as he stood down the 450 prophets of Baal. He prayed fire down from heaven, and fire came and consumed not just the sacrifices, but the entire altar. Now, here's the point. The fire of God can still fall upon our life. The fire of God can still fall in our church. The fire of God can still fall in our city. But fire doesn't fall on empty altars. You want the fire of God to fall upon your life. You've got to be the fuel of the fire. You've got to put yourself on the altar before the fire begins to fall. That's my prayer for all of our lives as New Testament priests of the living God. Now, one last thing. I want you to see this. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says this, And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Now, I'm telling you, nothing is here accidentally. Moses and Aaron reappear together simultaneously. Some would suggest, well, that's a picture of Jesus. He's both prophet and priest, and that's true. You have a picture here side by side of the prophet and the priest. Moses being the prophet, Aaron being the priest. Uh, and that's true. Jesus is both prophet and priest. But I personally think uh, the, the real explanation for this is found in Exodus 4.16. Gives us, I think, the correct understanding of this. Listen to what it says. He shall be your spokesman to the people. God is saying to Moses regarding Aaron, his brother. He's saying, Aaron shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. So there you have the picture, the symbolism. You have Moses as God, not that he is God, but he's as God. Then you have Aaron, who is the spokesperson as God. Uh, I should say the spokesperson of God. So what do you have here? You have a picture of Moses, God the Father. And who's the spokesperson of God the Father? Well, it's God the Son. John 1 and verse 1. Uh, the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You have here God the Father, God the Son, blessing now the people, having been uh, ushered in by the consecration of the priesthood. There's so much more I uh, wish I had time to say, but you know what? We're going to save it maybe for next time. Love you a whole bunch. Have a really, really awesome week. Let's be those priests of God. Die to self, die to sin, and let the glory of God begin to descend. Leviticus chapter 9, are you learning how to be a priest? Because we are. You know, uh, so much of what the Bible teaches just really takes people off guard. You know, kind of like this morning. Like I had a couple people tell me that, uh, you know, when I said that everybody here is a saint. Wow, what? What did he just say? Everybody's a saint? I mean, we've been taught what? Only a very special class of Christians get to be a saint, right? Uh, that's what a lot of us grew up with. Yet the Bible is so clear, isn't it? I mean, here's the reality, guys. We're studying the Word of God as opposed to the traditions of men. And let's face it, the church life, regardless of your denomination, regardless of maybe uh, your church affiliation, a lot of times what we begin to hold to are the traditions of men, and we confuse that with doctrine. And they're not the same thing, are they? It's kind of like uh, the idea of what it takes to be a saint. We're all saints of God as children of God. 
uh, simply means holy ones, and that's how God sees us all. You're no longer a sinner in the eyes of God. You're now a saint in the eyes of God. You're holy and blameless already in Christ. And you think about this priest. You think about we're all priests of God. And a lot of us um, have been raised to believe that well, to be a priest, to qualify as a priest, there are certain things you've got to do. I mean, you've got to go to seminary, and uh, you know, you've got to maybe have some special garments on, right? And um, you know, you've got to look a certain way and maybe talk a certain way. But are, are you learning, I hope, what it means when the Bible teaches in the New Testament the priesthood of the believer, that we're all priests of God? That means we all have a priestly ministry, and we can see that pictured right here in Leviticus chapters 8 and 9. Uh, questions, anybody? Thoughts? Anything you want to add? Anything you want to share? Anything God's showing you? Or, uh, Yeah, Gail. Okay. <clears throat> so I remember in Ezekiel the, that he saw the presence of the Lord leave the temple. And then when they returned, they started up the priesthood again. Did the presence of the Lord return? And was the presence of the Lord in the temple when Jesus was here? And is that why the Jews want to start sacrificing again to get the presence of the Lord to return? Yeah. So uh, the presence of the Lord would fill the tabernacle or later the temple based on the obedience of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so by the time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, the presence of God had departed probably decades before the Babylonians ever came, right? Because Judah fell into such idolatry. Uh, after Solomon died, there was civil war, and the kingdom was split. The ten northern tribes went north, and they collectively came known as Israel. The two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, uh, became known collectively as the, the kingdom of Judah, right? And so what happens then after Solomon, both the northern and southern kingdoms fell into idolatry. And so uh, the implication would have been when Solomon built the temple, uh, the Hebrew leadership was living in obedience before God, and God's presence literally inhabited the Holy of Holies. Uh, the presence of God was in that holy place, exactly as God intended. God wanted the Jews to build that temple, preceded by the tabernacle, to what? Be a lighthouse to the nations. God's purpose for the Jews was never merely to redeem the Jews, uh, but God's purpose for the Jews was that through the Jews, God would redeem the nations. And that was the promise God gave Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant of uh, Genesis chapter 12. He said to Abraham, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So understand, sometimes we think, well, the Jews were God's chosen people as if they were the special ones and God loves them more. That's not at all what's going on there. God simply chose them to be the promise bearer and the promise a keeper, that promised seed of Genesis 3.15 would go through them specifically. And that Savior King would come of the Jews. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. Because the Jewish Messiah came to redeem all men and women of every nation from their sin. Not just the Jews, but me and you too, Gentiles as well. And so uh, God had them build the temple in the days of Solomon, that temple was going to be a lighthouse to the nations. Uh, and probably in the days of Solomon, 
is as close as it ever came. Uh, as kings from the earth and queens and Gentile rulers of the earth would come to Jerusalem and they would come sit at the feet of Solomon uh, whose wisdom went out and his reputation all over the earth. Uh, and it was there they would encounter the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many of them would indeed bring the knowledge of the true and living God back to the nations from which they came from. And so it can be presumed, I think, that during the reign of Solomon, God's presence was there in the Holy of Holies. But what happens after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits. Rehoboam um, leads an insurrection against Solomon's son, Jeroboam. And um, he, he leads those ten northern tribes into idolatry. He doesn't want them going back to Jerusalem to worship. He's afraid if they go back to Jerusalem, they'll stay and more or less defect from his kingdom. And so if you ever go on the Holy Land tour, you'll go to a place called Dan, the city of Dan. And the city of Dan is where archaeologists actually uncovered the golden altar that Rehoboam built in the city of Dan. Uh, and he'd been in Egypt, and what was the idol the children of Israel had fashioned while Moses was up on Mount Sinai? The golden calf. Well, guess what it was that Rehoboam had fashioned for those ten northern tribes to worship? A golden calf. Now, here's the problem. Not only did the ten northern tribes go into idolatry, the two southern tribes did too. Uh, and while there was never revival in the northern tribes, they stayed in idolatry until they were left uh, uh, into a place of captivity in the Assyrian invasion of 722 B.C. The two southern tribes, they'd have moments of revival. They had a few good kings mixed in with some really, really wicked kings. Uh, you remember, for example, Hezekiah was a godly king. Josiah is the one that found the scrolls probably after generations. It's like they discovered the word of God, had been lost in the temple, forgotten. And all of a sudden he gets hold of the word of God, the people of God get revival. There's revival in Israel once again. The problem is it would never last. So by the time the Babylonians came in 586 B.C., and pillaged the temple, it could be argued, Gail, that God hadn't been there for generations already. And so what happens? Uh, at the time of Christ, about 40 B.C., Herod the Great comes to power. He's the puppet king of Rome. And he wants in some way uh, to build a bridge to the Jews. The Jews hated Herod the Great. And they hated him because, one, he wasn't a Jew, yet he claimed to be king of the Jews. He was actually a Nebataean, and his hometown was Petra, right, where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world is, something else you can go to see if you ever go on the tour with us. And uh, he, he was hated by the Jews, and so he knew that if he were to build the Jewish temple, maybe somehow, some way, they would accept him. Well, he did build the temple, and that was the temple uh, at the time of Christ. The problem is, it's no different than... In many churches today, you know what the Apostle Paul says? Paul, Paul would describe, I'm convinced, the condition of the church today with these words. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. So what happens? The Pharisees are unbelieving men. Uh, they, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Uh, and so consequently, uh, I don't think there's any evidence to think that the presence of God was in the temple at the time of Christ either. Now, here's the reality. That temple will one day be dwelt by who? By God himself. 
uh, and it was meant to be indwelt by God. There's coming a day in the rebuilt temple during the millennial kingdom that guess who will dwell in the temple and sit on that throne for a thousand years. It'll be Jesus, and guess what? Then they once again will be the lighthouse to the nations. Now think about what we've just learned. If that temple in Jerusalem of the Jews was meant to be a lighthouse to the nations, and you and I today are the New Testament temple, right? We are the temple of God, 2 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Then guess what that makes me and you? We are to be what? The lighthouse to the nations. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Even so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So that was a long answer. Did I, did I actually answer your question, Gail? <laughs> I kind of like, wow, I'm not really sure what I was answering. But I hope I answered it somewhere in there. Pastor Phil, what's the difference between a priest and a saint? So, uh, in this case, um, in the New Testament sense, every saint is a priest, and every priest is a saint. Okay? So remember, again, guys, the traditions of men is usually different than true biblical doctrine. Traditions of men says, like I said this morning, uh, to be a saint, you've got to be dead. You've got to be dead a long time. And then certain elite members of the church gets together and have a vote on your life to see if you merit sainthood. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. Uh, what the Bible teaches is the word saint simply means holy one. Remember, Paul addressed the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians to the saints that are in Ephesus. And so the idea that saints have to be dead is kind of silly considering Paul is clearly writing his letter to living members of the church at Ephesus, not dead members, right? And so what else have we learned? Not only is every Christian, if you name the name of Jesus and you've been born again by faith in him in the eyes of God, you are a saint. Now, what else have we learned? Not only are you a saint, but according to 1 Peter 2, 5 and 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, you're also a priest. And so saint is simply a title. It means holy or holy one. We are holy ones in the eyes of God. I know it's hard for us to believe because every single one of us are aware of the fact that by gum we still sin. Okay? Remember, you have two realities. You have your temporary um, reality in the flesh, but then you have your e eternal positional reality in Christ. You have to understand, as a child of God, God sees you in Christ. He sees you in him. And because he sees you in him, he does not see you in your sin. And that's why he calls you a saint, even though practically you're not holy. Positionally, in the eyes of God, you already are holy. Because think about it. Otherwise, you, couldn't, you could not go to heaven if you died. Why is it tonight, let's, let's just say theoretically, I know this wouldn't happen with anybody here especially having just been to the well. But let's just say theoretically, Barry, uh, you're on your way home tonight and your wife gets under your skin. I know she couldn't do that. She could never do that because she's a saint. Yes? That was your moment, Barry. Yes. 
But let's just say she gets under your skin, and you would never do this. Let's just say, you know, just you, 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 you kind of snap, and you just look at her. Say something you shouldn't say. It's an ugly, mean thing to say to your wife, right? You just sinned, didn't you? Now, what happens if in that moment, I pray this doesn't happen. I mean, I really pray it now since I'm using this as an illustration. But let's say you are so distracted because you're just so irritated, you run your car off a cliff. Okay? Next thing you know, you're at the pearly gate. Hey, you just sinned. The last thing you did was sin. You spoke to your wife in a sinful, ungodly way. Guess what? You still get to go to heaven. You know why? Because in Christ, God no longer sees your sin. He now only sees you in him. And that is why any of us tonight can live with that sense of security eternally that it's not me having to hang on to God. It's God who hangs on to me. I am in him. And consequently, God doesn't see my sin. Practically, yes, I still sin. But positionally, my work cannot undo Christ's work. Okay? And so what does saint mean? Saint is a title. It means holy. Priest is more than a title, though. Priest is a job description. Okay? Saint's not a job description. Saint is just an adjective. It's a title that means holy, whereas priest is a job description. What does a priest do? We've learned it. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. To offer up spiritual sacrifices unto him. So just like those ancient Hebrew priests were offering up sacrifices, Peter's saying in the very same way, we're to offer up sacrifices. Oh, what's the number one sacrifice as New Testament priests we are to make? Remember, we're the priest, and we're also the sacrifice. Romans 12:1, daily offering up to God ourselves as a living sacrifice. My life is to be that sacrifice, that burnt offering, where I am completely withholding nothing. I'm giving all I have to Jesus as a New Testament priest. Yep. He's fast, isn't he? You better be ready. Stephen. <laughs> so, you know, about positionally, as you just uh, described, this morning you were talking about adoption, and um, I found out since I've been an adult that um, those children that are adopted legally, they can never be disowned. Uh, by the parents after that, or the children themselves can't disown their parents because it's legally set in stone, whereas uh, birth children, natural biological children, can do that, and they could divorce their parents or their parents could disown them and disinherit them, but adopted children cannot even be disinherited. And I found that out when I tried to give my cat back and she said, <laughs> the lady on the phone said, oh, no, you adopted that cat. It's yours forever. For life. <laughs> well, I don't know about cats. I just know about people, okay? The, and you're making, listen, you're making, I'm convinced this is why uh, the New Testament teaches two things. How do we get into God's family? We're born into God's family. We are the seed of Genesis 3.15. We have God's DNA spiritually. 
We're, hey, 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's why you must have a new birth. Jesus called it being born again. You're born the first time of corruptible seed. Adam's seed was corrupted because of sin. That seed, what was meant to give life, could now only give death. The wages of sin is death. But now you're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. That's the seed of Genesis 3.15. But not only have you been born into God's family, now you've been adopted into God's family. And you're making the observation, why? Because God is teaching, as children of God, uh, the, the new birth implies one thing, but adoption implies another thing altogether. Now, um, I'm going to get into this later, maybe in two or three weeks in our Ephesians 1 study, guys. They talk about, like, I'm weighing, I'm weighing into so much deep, controversial stuff. It's like, man, it's like I'm a glutton for punishment. Why do I do this? All right? I mean, I got people mad at me today because I'm redefining what they thought about saints. And, uh, you know, now I got, you know, priests and... Um, you know, here's no, no, oh, wait, next week, oh, Calvinism, <laughs> predestination, already got people on the live stream typing tulip as they're listening to me preach this morning. It's hilarious. I love this stuff. It's, can you tell? Yeah, totally. We're going to make everybody mad next week. Everybody, everybody. Yeah, we're just going to, yeah, we're not going to just stir it to just to stir it, but we're going to try to bring a little clarity to what are some really heavy, weighty theological issues, all right, that people really don't agree on historically. you got two theological systems kind of that have gone, gone at it head-to-head for about 500 years. Armenianism, Calvinism, two extremes. One says it's all free will. This other says there's no free will. Which is it? I'll come back next week. Okay. Here's another one. Eternal security. That's controversial. Um, Can you lose your salvation once you've been saved? A lot of people believe you can. I want you to think about this a minute, though. While while a, a, a son or a daughter that has been a natural born son or daughter, yeah, they legally can disown mom and dad. They legally can divorce mom and dad. They legally can change their last name. They legally never have to talk to them again. But they cannot change the fact they carry mom and dad's DNA. They were born a child of that mom and dad. They will die a child of that mom and dad. And nothing they can do can change the fact that they are a son and daughter by birth. This is why one more re- I'm convinced, no, you can't, once you've been born a child of God, you can't be unborn a child of God. All right, Ephesians 1.13, we're going to get there. Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Your sin may grieve the Spirit of God, but it cannot break the seal of the Spirit of God if indeed you have truly become a child of God. Because your work, no matter how ungodly, cannot undo God's work through the Son of God on the cross, see? And so, you can't be, as a natural-born child, you will never be anything less than a son or a daughter. 
Now, here's what happens. If you walk away from mom and dad, you can change your last name, you can divorce them legally, you can disinherit them, disown them. You cannot ever change the fact that you have a relationship as a son or a daughter, but what you abandon is the fellowship as a son or a daughter. Okay? Now, What the Bible does teach about that, because a lot of people ask, well, what about people who pray to receive Christ, and they appear to become a Christian, and they start to walk with Him, and and then all of a sudden they just walk away, or, you know, they're the prodigal son, and they're living in sin, and, and they act like they're going to heaven even though they're living like hell, all right? Well, see, didn't they lose their salvation? No, here's the promise, all right? Here's the promise. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, whom the Lord loves... He chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And he that is without chastening is an illegitimate son. Okay, so what the promise is this. You may backslide to use that term. That's a biblical term. But the promise is as a child of God, you may backslide, but if you're really a child of God, you're going to slide back up again. See, the promise is that as a child of God... You may walk away from the Father, but the promise is he's going to chasten your little backside until you repent of that sin and you do circle back and come back to him. And I'm living proof of that, guys. I'm telling you. I mean, I've lived this. Uh, I'm convinced. Uh, I you know, talked about today my gotcha date. My gotcha date was a six-year-old little boy in church. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. Like, I'm, I'm telling you up front, I'm not by definition a Calvinist. There's elements of Calvinism I certainly agree with biblically, and elements I absolutely don't agree with biblically. But, but if I was going to form my theology on personal experience, oh, I'd be a Calvinist. You know why? Because I can say, as a six-year-old little boy, I experienced what I would call today irresistible grace. I mean, that's the eye in the tulip, meaning I'm there on a Sunday night, And everything in me is trying not to respond to the invitation. But I can tell you that there was a force I did not fully understand when I was six. I couldn't have explained it theologically like I can today. Now I know it was the Holy Spirit, and I had no choice but to respond that night and give my life to Jesus. I was six. By the time I was 16, you would have never known I was a Christian. I mean, I was in full rebellion. And I was too smart to, um, you know, be openly rebellious. My dad is sitting right back there on the back row. (laughs) I was too smart to go through him. So I just kind of learned to go underground, right? But either way, it's rebellion nonetheless. But whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. Here's the promise. If you're really a born-again son of God, you may sin, but you won't win. You may have a blast, but it won't last. And at 21 is when I came back again. See? And that, by the way, is what Calvinists would call the perseverance of the saints. See, there's elements I really do think are biblical. The perseverance of the saints says, listen, the only evidence you have that you really are a Christian born again is that you continue to walk with him. If you're walking in sin... You need to question whether you're really a Christian. See, the idea that you really are born again, the evidence is that you continue in the faith, that you don't leave the faith. Because you can't walk away and stay away. 
All right. I was going to go back to the question you were talking about, the people that backslide. What if they die before God chastens them and they return? Yeah. So how many sins would it take for you to commit that go unforgiven to keep you out of heaven? How many sins? See, here's the point. If you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. Because all it would take is one sin one time to keep you out of heaven. This is why when you came to faith, he sees you in Christ. He put you in Christ. So that now when you sin, he doesn't see your sin. He sees you in him. And so even, let's say... Uh, you die in that prodigal condition. You die in that rebellious condition, still in your rebellion, still in sin. If you've still really been born again, the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, 8, cleanses us from all sin. It happened one time instantly, positionally in Christ. The moment you call on his name, Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The moment you place your faith in him, all of your sins, past, present, and future, is forgiven. All of your sin is under the blood. Okay? Now, once again, what do you lose? You don't lose your relationship with the Father as a born-again child of God, adopted member of his family. But you lose the fellowship. You lose your reward in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Denise, says it very clearly, that at the judgment seat of Christ... He will feed our lives through the fire, and for some of us, our lives will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. Some of us will go through the fire, and it will be like gold, silver, and precious stones. Gold, silver, precious stones is purified in the fire. It's the refiner's fire. But if we've lived a life of sin and selfishness, then the implication is wood, hay, and stubble. It goes through the refiner's fire. And guess what it says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Some will suffer loss, yet they themselves shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So what do they suffer loss of? It's loss of reward. There's no reward. They didn't lose. Hey, heaven is not a reward. They haven't lost heaven. Heaven is not a reward. Heaven is a gift. You can't earn a gift. You earn rewards. And so your sin causes you to lose rewards in heaven, but your sin cannot cause you to lose the gift of salvation and the destination in being heaven, Denise. Yeah, Joel. Now somebody's sitting here going, somebody's sitting here going, uh-uh, 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 Phil. It's okay. So with that example and, and applying that to the prodigal son, if he had not come to himself and had died, news would have gotten back to the father. He would have brought his son, his body, buried him in the family tomb, but he would not have seen the reward of coming back, the ring He would have finger. never, ever enjoyed the reward of being in a right relationship with the father. He would have lost forever the fellowship of his family. But see, somebody actually, at one time, that was trying to convince me eternal security, this doctrine isn't true, that you can lose your salvation. And they use Luke 15, the prodigal son, as an example. 
and said, Phil, what, what if he would have stayed in the pig pen? And you know, the point I made to him is you made my point. What had he stayed in the pig pen? He still hasn't stopped being the son of the father. He was born that father's son. He would die that father's son. So you, don't, you can't be unborn as a child of God once you've been born again. Why? Once again, because we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 1, once again, this is where we're headed. You're going to see the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. How the three in one and the, and, and the ministry of each member of the Holy Trinity works together in unity to affect the salvation of men and women for eternity. And guess what the work of the Spirit is? The work of the Spirit Ephesians 1.13, the Spirit of God is our guarantee. He is our security. Uh, in other words, that word guarantee in Ephesians 1.13 implies, uh, you know, my wife is a realtor. And when somebody gets ready to purchase a house, guess what they always have to do? Before they purchase it fully, they have to take out a check and they have to do what? What, what is that? It's earnest money exactly what it is. What you're saying is, I'm guaranteeing I'm good for this. Your earnest money. And that's the same kind of concept that Paul's trying to articulate when he talks about the Spirit of God being our guarantee. He's saying, look, he's the earnest money. He is the guarantee of your salvation. He's the one that is holding on to your salvation because you couldn't hold on to it if you tried. Guys, let's face it. If we had to hang on to our own salvation, some of us couldn't keep it for the next 10 minutes, much less the next 10 days because one sin, you'd be lost again, have to do it over again. Another sin, lost again, have to do it over again. This is why, honestly, some denominations have the best altar calls ever because everybody in the church goes forward every Sunday and gets resaved. Because I might have lost it somewhere during the week. By the way, I'm not mad at anybody. Like, I love good God-fearing, godly assemblies of God and Pentecostals. I love you guys. You have the best altar calls. You got the best worship. Uh, I love me some good Baptists. You got the best Bible studies. You do. Hey, I'm not at war with the Calvinists. They're not my enemies. There's a lot of Reformed believers that love Jesus uh, I'm not at war with Armenians. Armenians are the free willers, free will Baptists, Nazarenes, uh, Armenians, a lot of Pentecostals. If you believe you can lose your salvation, you may not know it. That's Armenian theology. It's free will. It's all free will, meaning I can freely come, and that means I can freely walk away, right? Uh, whereas you got your frozen chosen over here, <laughs> right? Frozen chosen says... Uh, it wasn't your free will. You don't have a free will. It was purely God's will imposed on your will. You just thought you had free will. You can't walk away. You didn't even try to come. Of course you got to stay. Until <laughs> you can totally ram some fun next Sunday. Oh, yeah. All right. Somebody else. Yep. When we first came here, uh, you spoke about um, a sign that was given to you, I think, at a hotel. Somebody showed up, and could you tell that story again? Sure, if you want me to. Yeah. So uh, I was doing, I'm not sure what series I was in, um, but I, I was probably doing a sermon or a teaching or something on angels, the ministry of angels. And Hebrews chapter 1 says that 
um, angels are ministering spirits sent from God to minister on his behalf, right? And then you get down, I think it's Hebrews chapter 9, and it says that some have entertained angels unaware, meaning that when angels show up to minister, often they take on the body of men. They look like men. They veil their true identity. They look like one of us. Hence, some have entertained angels unaware. Like, you talked to an angel. You didn't know you were talking to an angel. It was, it, it was an angel, but it looked like a man. And so I was telling this story, guys, of, um, you know, years ago when I was considering a call to the ministry. And I was on the police department still. And I was right kind of in the thick of really discerning the call of God in my life. Does he, does he want me to you know, surrender to vocational ministry and pastor and preach or, you know, stay on the police department, which I'd planned to do for 25 or 30 years of my life. And I'm really having this struggle and just really, really trying to discern the call of God in my life. And I had this off-duty job down at the Marriott downtown. A lot of cops work off-duty because uh, it's extra money. It's usually easy money. In this case, I would sit in the lobby of the Marriott for four, five, six hours at a time, and I'd literally just sit there on the couch and just pass the time in whatever way I could. I'd get paid for it, okay? And uh, it's one of those times that I'm sitting on the couch, and I'm trying to make my easy money, but I'm really, with my eyes open, I'm really praying, and I'm really meditating. God, what do you want me to do with my life? Are you calling me? I think I was probably doing the interim thing at this little church at the time and preaching on Sundays as a cop, and I don't know what I'm doing, and it doesn't make sense that God be calling me. I mean, I haven't been to seminary. I'm not ready, all that stuff. And, and this guy comes and sits down at the end of the couch. And uh, I remember him leaning forward. He puts his hands in his face like this. And then he sits back, and he looks at me, and I look at him. And he looks at me, and I remember him saying, he says, do you, know, do you know the purpose of life? And I said, no. <laughs> to which he says, it's to know God and make God known. And then he gets up, without saying another word, he walks around the corner. And guys, I'm sitting there, and I'm telling you, my spirit leapt within me. Like, who was that? What was that? What just happened? And I'm literally, he's not gone for more than three or four seconds around the corner, and it's a long run. It's a long hallway, like nowhere for him to go, run, hide, no doors he could have gotten into, rooms, whatever. Long run, long highway. Uh, and, and so I, I jump, run behind him. I'm going to try to catch him, see, hey, who are you? What's your name? And he is gone. He's gone. So I can't prove this. I don't know this, but I have a feeling when I get to heaven, I'm going to meet an angel. And they're going to say, Phil, that was me. That was me. Yeah, God sent me to you to answer that question you were pondering. Uh, I think that's the, the story that you're thinking of. Is that right? Yeah. Hey, I'm convinced when we get to heaven, guys, we're going to discover all kinds of moments like that that came and went and we never knew. We entertained angels unaware. Somebody came into our life at the right moment. Something happened at the right time. God sent them to minister to us, and we never knew they were an angel. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Got time for what? one more. Got time for one more. Okay. Uh, 
Can you explain the unforgivable sin? Yeah. Okay. Puzzles me. So great question. It's one of the number one, probably number one all time questions, and we got one minute. Okay. So, but this is not a hard one. This is not deep theology. So a lot of people, you know, Jesus, Jesus talked about um, every sin will be forgiven among men except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven. So there's the unpardonable sin, won't be pardoned. And so people have said, well, Phil, I'm afraid maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin. I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, meaning, uh, you know, I cussed. Guys, I've been open and honest about my stuff, like, you know, this besetting sins in my life. This is one of them. So, like, if that's the unpardonable sin, Pastor Phil's in big trouble. <laughs> big trouble. Okay? Because um, I've had to confess that one over and over again. So, it's not cussing, taking the Lord's name in vain. That's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Who's he talking to specifically? He's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who knew who he was of all the people in Israel should have been ready for the Messiah, should have been pointing others to the Messiah. They are willfully, with their eyes wide open, rejecting him as the Messiah. You see, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is somebody who willfully, knowingly, wittingly rejects the Son of God. No man comes to the Son of God except by the drawing of the Spirit of God. Jesus said, no one comes to me except my Father in heaven draw them. Which is why, by the way, I'm not an Armenian. It's not completely free will, is it? No. You don't come to Jesus whenever you want, however you want. You come when the Spirit of God allows you to come. And then you better come, because if you don't come, and the Spirit of God doesn't give you another chance to come, you may never get another chance to come. There's a whole other message there. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then, is somebody who has willfully rejected the gospel. They had a chance to come to Christ. They knew the gospel they willingly rejected the gospel, not because they didn't know, but they did know, and they chose anyway to say no. Now, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they've quenched the Holy Spirit of God. They have resisted the Spirit of God that was wooing them and trying to draw them to him. And why did Jesus say it can't be forgiven? I'll tell you why. Because they die in their sin. And at that point, there's no hope for redemption. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. Great question, guys. Really, really is. I love studying the word with you. It's 547, so we got to be done. But you know where we'll be next week, okay? Lord Jesus, help us, I pray, to be that light, to be those New Testament priests. Lord, to walk out daily as saints of God, what you've said about us already positionally, that, Lord, we would be holy and uh, pursue a life that is holy. And that our life would point people to your glory. God, fill us with your spirit and help us, Lord, in these, in these evil days to stand for truth and do it with grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go with you. Oh, next week is Memorial Day weekend. Thank you. We will not be here. Be here two weeks from tonight, okay? All right, good catch, good save.